morning. Good to see everybody. I have issues today. I'm just going to say it. Um, I can't hear out of my right ear. And it's totally throwing me off. So I can hear myself speak more and I can't, uh, my equilibrium's off a little bit. So um, something, if anything crazy happens today. This is how, yeah, please, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, just join me. We love Rod. We don't want him to feel like that, right? (laughs) All right. So God, thank you for this brother. And I just know, God, that you've used him in my life for 10 years now to speak your truth, speak your kindness, your nearness, your gospel to me. And I know that this room is full of other people that just look up to this man. Um, and so, God, thank you for his humility, his weakness, and even when he's preaching today, God, we pray that you would be strong in his weakness, God. We pray that your power would make, be made perfect when he comes to the end of himself, that he would rely on you, that he would hide behind your cross and say, Jesus, you're what it's all about this morning. Amen. Love it. Love this church. Love everything that's already happened today. I I just can't believe I get to be a part of a church where Dave Vanderbilt gets up here and does what he does. and (laughs) The life story of God and his power in Deb's life. Um, And really, as we look at God's word now, like we believe that we're, look, we're stepping into real power, um, the power of God's word. We've been looking at Paul's life, and we believe that Paul's life matters. Uh, my whole life, you know, I, I was taught his theology uh, through his letters, not realizing that Paul was something other than a seminary professor, which he's not. Paul's a church planner. And these letters that he writes, Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, First and Second Corinthians... Uh, are, are letters that he's writing to churches that he has been very involved in, that he's planted. Um, and we've seen already in his life, I mean, Paul's life was going in a radical direction. And when he encounters Christ, he is profoundly, profoundly changed. And I think the thing that most changes in Paul's life Really, it begins with his whole conception of God. Who God is, and primarily, how God, through his Christ, is going to repair the world. Because that's the hope of the text. That's the hope of the first century Jew. That God is going to send his Christ, and when he does, he's going to repair the world. But Paul's notion of Christ was probably... What we read in Psalm 2, that that messianic text, that that God is going to place his king on his holy hill in Jerusalem and bring God's rule to all things so that every king will kiss the feet of the son lest he be angry. And so Paul could not in any way conceive Of a crucified Christ. Especially when you think about what crucifixion meant in the first century. We we think of crucifixion as as just a torturous way to die. But in the first century, crucifixion was Rome's way of humbling and humiliating their enemies. To declare to them and to the world, we win 
you lose. I mean, it was like them just taking the football and just spiking it right in their face. We're the victors, and you're the losers. So when Christ was crucified, I mean, that just dashed any hope in so many of their minds that, that Christ could be the Messiah. And in Paul's mind in particular, he's just like, I don't understand what you guys are proclaiming until he's on the road to Damascus and he encounters Christ and he knows it's Christ and he says, who are you? And Christ says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. And in that moment, Paul's whole conception, his whole paradigm of who Christ is uh, is and, and, and was and what he's going to do, it, it, it's blown up. And for the first time, he realizes Jesus didn't lose. Rome didn't win. Jesus won. And he didn't just win over Rome, but he won over a greater enemy, death itself. And the way he won was through losing. The way he triumphed was through defeat. And I'm sure he found such joy because it's not like this isn't in the text that he knew so well. It's all over the scriptures uh, that, that the Messiah would, would suffer. Uh, ex, uh, texts like Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, speak of this. In fact, even in the Talmud, which are these extra-biblical writings that date before the time of Jesus, um, some of the rabbis uh, coined a term for the Messiah who was to come. They called him the leper Messiah because they taught that when Messiah comes, the place you're going to find him is among the lepers because he's going to heal the lepers and the way he's going to heal the lepers is he's going to become a leper. He's going to take their leprosy upon himself. And that's why in Isaiah 53, this messianic text where we know by his wounds we're healed. In 53 verse 4, it says, he bore our pain, he carried our sorrows. And, and this is how some of the translations, going back to the first century, translated the next clause. And we considered him a leper. And then you get down to verse 8 of Isaiah 53, verse 8. And, and it speaks about how he was cut off from the land of the living. Because this is what happened uh, to the leper. But it was more than just he was a leper and cut off. He suffered. And he died. And he was assigned, uh, says Isaiah 53, he will be assigned a grave. But then Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, but after he suffered and he died, he will see the light of life. He will live. And then you read the rest of Isaiah and, and, and you see how the light of life, this new creation, will be brought to God's people. It's even going to be brought to Gentiles that this new humanity is going to be born and even all creation, Isaiah speaks about the rebuilding of ancient ruins, the repairing of broken streets and neighborhoods, the restoration of homes and cities. And what brings all this about? A suffering Messiah. A Christ crucified. Which is why Paul says, our message is this simple. We preach Christ crucified. 
Now what we're going to look at today is that this message that Paul preached is not something he just preached. It's not just something he believed. But Paul became the message. Because we are not just to believe the message. This is a message that we are actually to become. We are to become Christ crucified. Now you ask, what does that look like? I mean, what does it mean to become Christ crucified? It means that everything that is on display when Christ is hanging on the cross, his humbling, his humiliation, his suffering, and his weakness are to be on display in our lives. I want us to hear that. That everything that is on display when Christ hangs on that cross, the humbling, the humiliation, the weakness, and the suffering ought to be on display in our lives. And, you know, when you look at Paul and, 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 and ask yourself this question, like, how, how did Paul actually change? Like, what in Paul's life um, was so radically different after he encountered Christ? And some will say, well, he, he became a man of God's word. <laughs> no, he didn't. Paul was a man of God's word before he met Christ. He probably had the whole thing memorized. Other people will say, well, well Paul now becomes someone who wants to please God. Uh-uh. Paul's whole life prior to meeting Christ, was about pleasing God. Well, others say, well, well, well Paul now committed to living this godly life. Uh-uh. Before Paul met Christ, his life was consumed with, with the pursuit of purity and righteousness. The thing that changes, and he, he, he tries to explain this through this image in 2 Corinthians 11, this, this thing that happened to him. And we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, so you can go in your Bibles right now to 941. But at the end of chapter 11, Paul says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying in what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and he says this because this is such a big deal to him. He said, in Damascus, the governor under King Eratos had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered at a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through his hands. And this image just captures the change in Paul. Because to those Corinthians, even though they're Christians, this would have been appalling. This would have been something like, Paul, why are you telling us this? This is embarrassing for you. That you actually had to like helplessly get in this basket and, and, and climb down that wall. I mean, this is defeat. This is weakness. And that is precisely 
what Paul would say is, is, is how I'm different. He's no longer climbing the ladder of success to make it to the top, to have all this power, but his life, like Christ, is now going down. He's climbing down the ladder. He's giving up his power. And more than anything, his life, like Christ, is now marked with suffering and weakness. Because Paul becomes the message. And his life becomes Christ crucified. And that sets the table for what we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians 12. Please stand. We'd love to stand here if you can, or you can stand in your hearts. And I'm just going to uh, skip over the first part. The first part of, of, of chapter 12 is Paul really giving them something because they want him to boast. <laughs> something that would be impressive to them, that he could tell them that, that they would be impressed with. But he says, that's not what I want to boast about. And then when you get to seven, this is what Paul says. Okay, if you guys really want me to boast, this is what I'll boast about. Because of these surpassing great revelations, that's what he just mentioned. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. Now, if you've been going to Crossroads for a while, you know I've alluded to this text several times, but I've never preached it. And let me first just say a word about this letter, 2 Corinthians. I mean, this is later in Paul's life when he's writing this. Um, And I really dived into uh, the letters of Paul preparing for a trip I led this past summer uh, to the Mediterranean to look at the seven churches in Revelation, but also stepping into the footsteps of Paul. And what I concluded is that of all the letters that Paul has written, this, in my opinion, is by far his most impressive. And the reason why I think that, it's not just because Paul lays out this beautiful theology But especially in this letter, his thinking, his thought, his theology is is interwoven into his life where he just lays his life out um, in such a raw, vulnerable kind of way. And I realize that that Paul actually needs to do this uh, with with this church in Corinth because uh, this church... has bought into what I would call the prosperity gospel. Now, now what do I mean by the prosperity of the gospel? The, the prosperity gospel is this, and, and it's something that Christians, uh, maybe even in this room right now, but all over our country, all over the world, have embraced. It's, it's the idea that when, when Christ comes into our life, that He comes in to make us healthy and to make us wealthy and to make us prosperous and to give us the good life, a pain-free life. And this is a very 
dangerous message. I mean, who this morning wouldn't want to believe that? But here's where the the, the prosperity gospel uh, goes wrong. And it's not in, in its ends. In fact, its ends are, 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 are incredible. Um, I, I also believe its ends because in the end, God is going to make it all right. We know that. His word says it. He, he's going to put the world back together. He's going to put our lives back together. And, and for the believer, for the person who trusts Christ, he's going to repair all that's broken. He's going to redeem everything that's gone wrong. He's going to raise everything that's dead back to new life. That's our hope. That's a biblical hope. That's Paul's hope. I don't know if you ever had um, a nightmare where you're dreaming away and all of a sudden in the dream uh, you're told you have cancer. Or in your dream, um, someone that you love really well uh, a whole lot passes away. And it, it, it's real. And you're in it. And then you wake up. And it's like, oh, Libby, I love you so much. And you know, this, this, this is what the end is going to be like. It's going to be like waking up from a nightmare. And, and all of a sudden, everything that's gone wrong in our life, everything that, that, that's been broken, all the loss that we've experienced, it's all going to be put together. And God is going to restore our lives in such an awesome way that we're just going to be, wow, we're speechless. Like that's our hope. But here's where the the prosperity gospel misses it. And in my opinion, it's a huge miss. It's it's not the end, but it's it's the means to the end. And and Paul lays out clearly in verse 9 the means to the end when he says God's power, the power that he unleashes in our lives, the power that he unleashes in the world, it's made perfect in weakness. And Paul starts talking about this weakness already in chapter 11, verse 30, where he says, All right, church, you want me to boast? I'll finally give in to what you want. I will boast in my weakness. And then chapter 12, as we see, he's going to continue talking about this. He's going to conclude it in chapter 13, verse 4, about talking about the weakness of God through the cross by which God is bringing life to the world. And this word weakness is really a word that's interchangeable with suffering. Because suffering and weakness is the means by which God is going to make everything right. Make us right. Make our world right. And here's the deal. I feel like I'm stating the obvious when I say this, but I feel like we have to say it today. Suffering's a fact of life. We all suffer. We all will suffer. I mean, we, we experience this physically. Right now I'm experiencing it a little bit with my ear. It's like our bodies, they, 
they, they fall apart. I, I, I love how Paul says this earlier in his letter in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4, he says we're all wasting away or we're all falling apart. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. Um, our bodies are falling apart. Our health is falling apart. Our, our physical traits are, are wasting away. It's not just true physically. It's true relationally. Over time, we, we, we make relationships, and these friendships, they, they blossom, and they grow into these beautiful realities, but at some point in time, the team falls apart. The, the band can't stay together. Friends move away. Families fracture. People die. In fact, everything that, that our hearts desire, our wants, our dreams... It's kind of like water's, water in our hands. You, you have it, and you, and you do everything you can to hang on to it, but it's just a matter of time before that water slips through our fingers. And this is true with all of our wants, all of our desires, all of our dreams. We, we attain them, but it's just for a while, and then they recede. They slip through our fingers. They fade away. I don't know what some of you are thinking, like, are you kidding me? Like, I got up this morning to hear this depressing talk. <laughs> the older you get, the realize that, that life really is moving from one loss to the next, from one sour sorrow to the next sorrow. And here's the deal. If I was speaking right now to any other generation other than ours, you know what they'd be saying right now? Duh. I mean, our grandparents and, and, and all the generations before them, they, they just knew life is hard. Life is difficult. At times, it's painful. They knew that life was filled with disappointment, that it was filled with loss, that it, that, that it contained within it moments of tragedy. They knew that everything is falling apart, that, that we are falling apart, that, that our world is falling apart. And it didn't freak them out. They weren't surprised by it. They didn't complain when it happened. Because to them, to, to live is to suffer. But today, it's like we're almost shocked when we suffer. And, and, and probably more troubling is we've lost the capacity to suffer and then in our thinking, we've concluded things that, that all suffering is, is, is the worst thing in the world. Ask yourself, why is suffering so bad? And then as a result, we develop a life strategy where we will avoid, avoid pain and suffering at all costs. And that's why the prosperity gospel is so tempting. That once I give my life to Christ, that now all of a sudden there will be no more suffering, no more hurt, no more discouragement, no more bad days, no more depression, no more seasons of struggle. And if I have it, I can just somehow pray it away or muster up enough faith, and it will be gone. It's a wonderful straw man, but that straw man comes crashing down. Now, here's what I found when, when people suffer. 
Not just people that hold to the prosperity gospel, but all of us. I, my own heart. Again, I've, I, I have suffered. I haven't suffered as much as some of the people in this room, but God has put suffering in my life. And I've also pastored many people who have suffered profoundly. And, and, and in those seasons of whether it be a sickness or whether it be a tragedy or whether it be a loss or whether it be a child who has walked away from the Lord, the, the first response is, why is this happening to me? And that's a fair response. But what I've found is that so few people have a biblical framework or a theology of suffering to answer such questions. Can you answer that question? Because, first of all, I believe the text we're going to look at today is going to give us a clear explanation as to why we suffer and, and, and who's behind it and, and, and its purpose, what it's for in our lives, so that we're not left scratching our head when suffering comes into our life, like, why is this happening to me? Or even worse, where our fists are clenched to God and like, God, why are you doing this? And here's the deal. If, if we can get what the Bible has to say about suffering, where we have this, this, this rich theology of suffering, uh, because the Bible provides us such an exalted view of suffering, such a hopeful perspective. It's a perspective that actually frees us up to feel the actual pain that we experience in the suffering without thinking that there's something wrong with us. It allows us to be vulnerable and real and transparent, but knowing that God is still anchoring us. It allows for us to even experience a joy that is every bit as real as the pain through God in that place, which is precisely how we become Christ crucified to a world that is in pain. And when you look at Paul, already beginning in chapter 11, I believe it's verse 23, I mean, he just lays out all the suffering in his life, or at least a lot of it, and and you ought to read it sometime. You can start reading it right now. I mean, this man has, has, has suffered, and he's not ashamed by it, because in verse 30, he concludes by saying, you know what, if you want me to boast, this is what I'll boast about, my weakness, my sufferings. And he even pushes this further in, in the text that we read, uh, chapter 12, verse 10. He says, I don't just boast about this, but I rejoice in my weaknesses, I rejoice in my sufferings, my trials and afflictions. And I'm really left saying, Paul, how can you say this? Is this real? It's because Paul has a proper theology of suffering. And that theology has been worked out into his life. He is a man who has suffered. God gives Paul a thorn. Verse 7, he, he calls this a, a, a thorn in the flesh. Flesh here uh, is not the word for body. It, it is the word for life. It, it, it's something that has been pushed in, into his life. Scholars want to know, well, well, what exactly is this thorn? I don't think the Bible wants us to know what the thorn is because we could easily quickly dismiss the rest of this text and say, well, that's not me. 
We all have thorns. And thorns are going to get pushed in our life. And and for Paul, this thorn might represent a particular season of suffering. It it might represent a a painful event in his life. What I think it actually uh, symbolizes is all the suffering that Paul has had to endure. It is something huge. Now notice what Paul calls this thorn. He calls this thorn a messenger of Satan. A messenger of Satan to torment me. And I think we'd be wise to see the role that that Satan plays in our suffering. Paul says it in Ephesians 6. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against those spiritual powers and forces that exist that, that seek to undo us. But see, here's the problem. If, 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 if our theology of suffering stops here, that, that we just would attribute all human suffering to Satan. Because what would happen then is we would make Satan a lot bigger and more powerful than Satan actually is. And we'd also minimize God and God's role in our suffering. And I'll tell you, it's a tempting thing to minimize God. When we suffer, we want to let God off the hook. We don't want God to be responsible. But Paul says with that thorn, I I plead with God. He says three times, take it away. Deliver me. And God's response to Paul. Well, you know, Paul, if, if, if you could just muster up enough faith, you know, we could maybe turn the tide of Satan in your life. You know, if you, if, if you would pray more and if, if, if you would fast more, you just might get delivered of this, this thorn. We know that's not what God says. God says, more or less, Paul, I like that thorn. Because that thorn is keeping you from being conceited. And Paul, my power is made perfect through thorns. And so right away, we should be asking, like, okay, so who's responsible for this thorn? Whose design is this? Is it Satan or is it God? And, And it's not Satan who puts this thorn in Paul's life. It's God. God says, my power, my power is made perfect, Paul, through thorns. And see, so many of us as Christians, it's, it's, it's like we see this world as a dualism where these, there, there are these two equal powers, God and Satan, who are just dueling it out. They're, they're battling it out. And it's like, who's going to win? And if I pray more, I fast more, I do more, I perform more, maybe God will win. Stop taking yourself that seriously. God sits on the throne. Jesus Christ is the king. And he is in control of all things. All things. 
And the only thing that that Satan can do to a follower of Jesus is what God allows him to do. He can't touch you. He can't harm you. Unless God gives him permission. So we can't attempt to let God off the hook. We're just tempted to think in our times of suffering like God... God, I know you would never do that. And God, I know that you would never allow that. Because you see, when we do that, it's like we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. Because the very thing that we need in our trial and in our our season of suffering is to know that there is a God who sits on the throne, who is sovereign, who is in charge, who knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and who we can trust that he's actually putting this in our lives for our good because he loves us. But in all of this, we also have to know that Satan's real. And from this text, I'll tell you what Satan does in our, in our suffering is it's like he capitalizes on it by coming in and attaching messages to our pain. A messenger of Satan came in to torment me. This is exactly what Satan does when we suffer. He comes in to belittle us. He comes in to push us down, to to say things like, you know why bad things are happening? Because you're bad. You're worthless. God doesn't love you. There's a reason why why Satan is called the accuser and, and a liar. This is how he works. And I think sometimes uh, the greatest devastation is not so much the suffering itself, but the messages that Satan will try to speak into our minds and hearts when we suffer. But I want you to notice first that Paul prayed. I mean, that's what he's doing when it says he pleaded with the Lord three times. He's praying. And, And when he prays, God also attaches his message to that thorn. Paul, I know this hurts. And I know Satan might be using it to torment you. But my grace is enough, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. In fact, my power is made perfect through this thorn. Why, God? Why do you allow these things? Why is this happening to me? Why can't I find a job? Why am I trapped in this awful marriage? Why does my spouse have cancer? Why can't I have children? Why don't I have any friends? Why doesn't anything go right in my life? Why? And see, when we're in that place... When we cry out to God, he will attach his message to our suffering just like he did to Paul's suffering. And it will be something very similar to, my grace is enough, Rod. It's enough. My power is made perfect in weakness. And see, I, I know that, that Paul doesn't just know this intellectually, but I know that in that place where he's experiencing suffering, he came to know the grace of God experientially. 
because he, what he says next, I don't just boast, but I, I, I rejoice. Just like in James, rejoice when you suffer. Peter says the same thing, rejoice. In fact, this, this, this clause, my power is made perfect in weakness, I studied it at length this week. There's no personal pronoun, my, so it's just power. So this could be translated, especially when you look at what the, the original language means when it says made perfect. Uh, it simply means comes to its end. So it could be translated when your power, Paul, comes to its end in weakness. When you come to the end of yourself, when you feel like you're depleted of all your, your resources to make yourself better or to make your life better, well, then what? Verse 9. When you get to that spot, my power will rest upon you. For someone who suffers, that's probably one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. That when we feel like we're utterly depleted, bankrupt, like we have nothing, when we come to the end of ourselves, God says, it's in that place where my power rests upon you. In fact, this word for rest, I would, I'd love for you to circle it in your Bibles because in, in the Greek, it's, it's skene, and skene is found in, in other places in our Bibles. Um, the place where you'd probably know best is John 1, verse 14, where it says, In the word, Christ became flesh, and he skenaed among us. That's what skene means. It means to, to, to pitch one's tent or to, to make one's home. Think about that. But here's the deal. It's not just skene here. It's the Greek word episkene. In other words, when we are completely barren and empty and depleted of resources, God says, that is when I don't just make my home in you. I, I episkene. I, all that I could bring and my presence in such profound ways will fall into your life. And this is, this is God. Like this is the God that we read about in, in the Bible. God uh, saves those who are crushed in spirit. He, he, he's drawn towards those in, in need. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I mean, God loves weakness for some reason. I mean, we're, we're getting a window right now into God's heart. His heart is so drawn and, and attracted to weakness. So much so that he becomes weak. I mean, think about Christ and, and, and all the weakness that, 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 that he bore from, from his birth all the way through his life and and, and then it comes to that, that crescendo when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and just like Paul, there he is. He's got a thorn. 
But this is the thorn of all thorns. And three times, like Paul, he says, God, would you remove this? Would you please take this away? And God's answer to Jesus is the same answer that he gives to Paul, which is oftentimes the same answer he gives to us. No! Why, God? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. And see, this is the gospel, the way that God unleashes his power in the world to redeem it and reconcile it and resurrect it to new life. It's through utter weakness. God becoming weak. And this is the way that God's power will be unleashed in our lives and unleashed through our lives. It will be through weakness. It'll be through suffering. I mean, listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, right at the beginning of the letter in verses 8 to 9. He, already, he starts this letter off. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships that we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt this sentence of death come over us. He's describing this experience, and now he gives the reason why it happened. He says, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I want us to see what Paul is saying here. I mean, he's experiencing this massive trial. He's under such great pressure that's way beyond his ability to control. He says he comes right up to the edge of of dying, and he says, I needed that trial. And the reason I needed that trial is because I started to trust in my own self instead of trusting in God. Even Jesus in Hebrews 2, verse 10, it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So why do we think that we can go a different way, that we can go above God's way or around God's way? It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Paul. Jesus said, follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I understand that we live in a world, a world that screams at us in every possible way. Be strong. Showcase all the power that you possess and whatever you do, Hide and get rid of all weakness, all blemishes. And Paul is here saying just the opposite. That's not how it is in Christ. We don't hide our weakness. We showcase it. Because when we showcase our weakness, we showcase Christ crucified. Are you showcasing Christ? This is the one place in the Bible where a Christian gets to boast. (laughs) And what do we get to boast in? 
our weakness and our suffering. I was thinking about this this, this week. I, I, I can't believe how many people in our church have gone before me, whether it be with cancer or whether it be a spouse passing away or a kid who's walked away from the Lord. How they have walked before me and have showed me Christ as they put on display their suffering. Not realizing that what they were really putting on display was Christ and all his glory. Just a couple weeks ago, I went up to the hospital to see Josh Buck, and he goes up there regularly now. He's losing. Josh is one of the, he's, he's in a wheelchair. You, you, most of us know him. But I remember when uh, that accident first happened, and he was in his hospital room, and I went up there to visit him. And there he was just laying on the bed. All he could do was move his, his, his right arm a little bit and plastered on the ceiling above his bed was this text from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far always the more. That's the hope of suffering. Every thorn, every weakness, every suffering that God pushes in your life. If you allow God to work that in and keep your eyes fixed on him, that is achieving for you something awesome that can only be described by words like resurrection and new life. Jesus gave us this meal. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance means to bring to the present. Bring what to the present? Bring Christ, his presence. And what is the presence that Christ, how does Christ want us, want us? The Christ, what kind of Christ do we come to? It's a Christ who says, my body which is broken, my, my blood that was shed, it's, it's the weakness of God. God on a cross. And so Christ comes to us in weakness so that we can meet him in our weakness. We bring our weakness to his weakness. And we do that and we eat this meal. His power is perfected in us. God, today, I know that there is more suffering and hurt and devastation, loss, sickness, cancer. God, may we today bring our weakness to a God who made himself weak 
And as we do that, God, may your power be perfected in our lives. May it be unleashed. Knowing, God, that the day is coming when a nightmare will wake up and everything will be made right. In Jesus' name, amen.